Hey there, and welcome back to the This Is Beauty podcast, where the search for real beauty begins with inspiring, thought-provoking, and often fascinating journeys deep into the heart of beauty itself. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Nina Kentz. In our last episode of the podcast, we talked about the experience of beauty and its connection to the human brain. In today's episode, I talked to Professor Tracy Morris about the inextricable links between poetry and beauty and how we often use poetry as a tool to understand, process, and describe life's most sacred and profound experiences, including love, beauty, life, and death. Dr. Morris is a professor of poetry at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the author of Hoodoo with Words and Rhyme Scheme. She is widely recognized as one of the most innovative and consequential performance poets of the last half century, and her installations and performances have been presented in multiple venues, both here in the U.S. and around the world, including the Whitney Museum and the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. A former Woodbury Creative Room Fellow at Harvard University, she also served as the inaugural Distinguished Visiting Professor of Poetry at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where she now teaches some of the most gifted and promising young poets and writers of tomorrow. In this conversation, Tracy and I talk about her work with the Iowa Writers' Workshop, the concept of poetic beauty, and poetry's role in helping us process, understand, and communicate experience. We also discussed the poet's role in society and how both rap and hip-hop have helped to revive poetry's oral tradition. Finally, as a special treat for our listeners, Tracy reads from the works of two of her favorite poets, Akilah Oliver and William Shakespeare, each of whom has something unique to say on the subject of beauty. It seems like the two of us had so much to talk about that there are moments in the interview where we trip over one another. I've tried to edit some of that out, But in the end, I decided to take it in stride because that's simply the nature of a passionate discussion. Needless to say, I love talking with Tracy about poetry and beauty, and I think it comes through loud and clear in this interview. And I think the feeling was probably mutual. I really hope that you enjoy hearing what she has to say. And now, without much further ado, I bring you Professor Tracy Morris. Hey, Tracy. Welcome to This is Beauty. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited to have you today. Oh, thank you. Before we get started, I think it would be helpful for us to learn a little bit about you, at least our audience, you and I have spoken. You're not only a professor of poetry at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, but you're also a poet in your own right, aren't you? I am. I am. I've I've written a bunch of books and done a whole bunch of things in various media in connection with my poetry practice. You do a lot of performance poetry as well. I do. I do performance poetry. I do uh, poetry for performance. I do poetry for film, um, uh, sound-based work uh, with music and also acapella and visual art, too. I just like to see the different places poetry can take you. So I've experimented with a few um, ideas and uh, a few genres of creative um, work and creative context, I would say. I'm also an installation artist, so I've done stuff for museums and galleries. And um, I guess the other part I should just mention is that I'm also a a scholar, and uh, I like to think about poetry and performance together as part of my scholarship. 
So I imagine that some of our listeners are already familiar with the Iowa Writers Workshop, but for those who aren't so familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit about the workshop and maybe about some of the courses that you teach there? I'm what you're teaching. Oh, sure. Um, Well, the Iowa Writers Workshop literally uh, set the standard for the Masters of Fine Arts, well, period, um, in terms of the University of Iowa. Um, It uh, initiated the Master of Fine Arts programs across genres. But the Iowa Writers Workshop itself is really set the tone for the Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. And Many programs have evolved over the decades of um, since the Iowa Writers Workshop initiated the idea of the MFA in creative writing, and it's it's taken on global proportions actually. So it's a real honor and pleasure and privilege to be affiliated with such a a storied and foundational program. A lot of people have won many awards. Uh, in connection with the Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, So it really did uh, set a tone for American arts and letters. How old is the program? It is incredibly 86 years old. Uh, Started in 1936 and has continued to set the tone, not only in terms of MFA programs, but the American and international arts and letters has been many Guggenheim winners and Pulitzer Prize winners and just the the, the gamut of high profile uh, as well as deeply meaningful smaller awards and validations for the direction of the Iowa Writers Workshop. So it's been a real honor and pleasure to be part of it as it has continued to grow and develop from its original moorings in the 1930s. It's it's uh, continued to evolve as American uh, letters, arts and letters has evolved and continue to do things like expand its relationship to innovation and integration in American society and all of these things. So, uh, yeah, top dog and still top dog. <laughs> Gates later. I, this is just a fun fact. I read this the other day that it is more difficult to get into the Iowa Writers Workshop than it is to Harvard, that something like to the tune of 5,600 applicants a year and approximately 134 are accepted. So it is really a, the creme de la creme, I think, of writers and poets. Yeah, it's really, really competitive. And um That's why it's deeply meaningful to me that they have continued to work towards diversifying um, and expanding the way that the workshop is perceived. And and in doing so, I think it's 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 continued to make the workshop relevant and important in American arts and letters. I think if it was just resting on its laurels from the 1930s, it would not maintain the status that it continues to have today. But it has wisely continue to develop more take in critiques about how it needs to shift and then get these extraordinary students who come from all over the world to be in Iowa. And it's, and it's just so wonderful. As a teacher, it's, it's allowed me to expand the, the offerings that I can share with my students because they're just really excellent students. They're very very intent on their work. They're very serious people. 
They're very committed and they want to know um, as much as they can to continue to have a life of the mind and a life in, in creative writing. So again, just wonderful. Do you teach performance poetry there? I mean, what are some of the, you know, some of the things that you're really engaged with in teaching? Well, it's, it's really fun because um, I teach the workshop. I, all of us teach a, a focused creative writing workshop where we really pay attention to the students' poetry, and that's the priority. But in the seminars, I've really run the gamut. I, I've taught um, performance poetry. I've taught voice and its relationship to poetry. I've taught uh, philosophy and its relationship to poetry. And this coming semester, I'll be working with Shakespeare and uh, multimedia relationships to Shakespeare and poetry. The the students are really interested in a range of things. And uh, because they come from such uh, an incredible array of places and backgrounds. They're just really interested in anything that we offer that is of a certain quality. It's really, really wonderful to work with them there. They're very, very committed people and definitely makes it uh, an extraordinary experience to teach them. The courses sound exciting and to be young and to be in that milieu is, it's just a special time. It's this very special time in an artist's life. Yeah. <clears throat> So I've always wanted to ask a poet this question, and it's probably rather a mundane question, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who has this question. And the question is, what is it about poetry that calls to you? Why is poetry important and relevant? You know, I write a bunch of different things. And I think your question is so great, Nina, because I asked myself that question quite a few times before I decided to really take the plunge with poetry. I just felt like it was the most meaningful. I felt like it was the hardest. I felt like it was the most intense. And it's what I fell in love with the most after really trying to avoid it. (laughs) You know, know, people don't go into poetry for the big bucks. So, and and that was never by focus, but it's really a commitment to say, I'm going to do this particular thing. And dedicate my life to studying and and thinking and and working in this this particular genre of writing. It's very, very, it's a commitment. And it's beyond, you know, the flash of the pad popularity of what people might want to see as a as as a as a performance. I mean, this is something gratefully, I think you one of the things you could say as an artist, you could do for the rest of your life. You're like breathing your last breath. And you could get that line down or say that thing. <laughs> and uh, so for a lifetime practice, poetry is, is different than other art forms um, that may not that you might not be able to do that with just because of the limitations of the human body and things change. But with poetry, you can be quite ancient and still continue to make work. So that's. That's another draw is that you could really dedicate your whole life to it. I think that's a really a lovely sentiment. Um, I never thought about it that way, but it does make sense. It does seem to me that it's also a continual world of discovery with mm-hmm. poetry. It seems that one would seldom become bored with what they're doing or that it would or that you would stagnate. And again, I'm not speaking as a poet. I'm just speaking from the outside looking in. I think you're right. It, it's really hard to get bored with poetry. like. You have to work at it because there's so much to discover. There's so many different voices. All cultures have had poetry. There's not a lot of 
things you could say, all cultures, et cetera, et cetera. But you could say that about poetry. And so it's like, how, how could you possibly be bored? But I do think there's a challenge in the way that people perceive a poetry and how it's taught. And sometimes that the, the limitation in which people think they can exist in the world of poetry, what poetry, they have been taught to think poetry means, if it's so narrow, then it can be boring because you're only looking at a tiny, tiny bandwidth, if you will. But if you really think of the totality of poetry and poetics, it's impossible to be bored. Absolutely. It's 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 incre- it's an incredible world to step in and immerse yourself in forever. <laughs> well, that actually kind of brings me around to my next question, which is, again, you know, observationally, it, I've always felt that poetry reaches us on a deeper level, whether we're poets or not, because it it speaks to us in a kind of an intuitive fashion, much in the way maybe music can. In fact, I've often wondered whether or not poetry couldn't be considered a kind of music itself, the way it's simultaneously inaccessible, or I can't really, it's accessible, but you can't really articulate. How so? What are your thoughts on that? Well, because I'm biased, I would say that music is a kind of poetry, but. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, turn that around. (laughs) But uh, I think you're onto something here, Nita, because poetry does have a bunch of elements working at the same time. And I think a strong poem has these different kinds of ways in which it can get to you and, and make you feel deeply. And sometimes they're musical, sometimes they're based on, in other words, the sonic qualities of it. Sometimes it's the image. Sometimes it's the way it invokes memory. It's like a feeling. Um, Sometimes it's based on wordplay. Sometimes it's based on hearing your own voice echoed back to you. And so it validates a sense of yourself that you might have. There's so many different ways in which it connects to people. And it also depends on the different types of poetry traditions that you're looking at, but it does have this kind of quality and often music, what we would consider music because it's the way we're usually taught to think about it Uh is ways of thinking about the dynamics of a line or phrase or word and it hits you just the right way or the combination of words speaking to each other and hits you just the right way. And you're like, why do I feel this thing? What is it? You said it's even hard right. to articulate because it's working on so many different elements uh, with so many different elements at once. Yes, exactly. That's what it feels like when, uh, when music resonates mm-hmm. with us. Yeah. 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 So when we are trying to describe something or we describe something as poetic, but what does the word poetic even really mean? I'm, I'm asking you that as a poet and also just a scholar. You know, it's interesting that the phrase poetic, the way that you just used it, everybody says that about everything. Like if they really, really want to say something nice, oh, that symphony was poetic. Oh, you know, the way that the flavors in that lasagna came together. It was like poetry. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm always fascinated by why they don't say it's like prosaic, why they don't say it's like music. They don't say it's like a dance. They don't, but they always say poetry. So 
I think there's two things happening, in my opinion. Uh-huh. They, they want to say that something is lofty, that it's an exalted level of not only status, but like almost beyond the regular human existence. They want to take it out of its normal status and put it in a higher status. And I don't mean an elite status. I mean a higher status for the person. Like when they say, oh my goodness, the, the way that you put together that smothered chicken, it was like poetic. They, they're not saying it's more elite. They're saying that they were elevated by it in a way that they would say if it was like really, really good. They're saying something different that it was really, really good. And I just I just think, well, it's so interesting that people say that about poetry, but they use poetry as a word in particular. A reference point. And yeah. this is one of the things we had really uh, gotten into when we first talked is about the there seems to be a natural connection between beauty and poetry, which I think even people mm-hmm. who aren't poets uh, or even particularly fascinated by poetry like we are, but who would make that association. But I think it's not unusual, especially in Western culture, for people to describe beautiful things and experiences poetic in terms of the way they perceive them. Um, I mean, the term poetic beauty comes to mind, for instance. What are your thoughts about the connections between poetry and beauty? Well, you know, it's a fascinating question, Nina, because I think across all cultures, the question is, I mean, around the world, the question is, in in the context of what you just asked, what's beauty, right? Because if if you think about the sort of, word heavy, adjective heavy, beautiful writing that we associate with, you know, well-known writers in English, for example. Uh That's one type of way of describing beauty, right? But then if you think about, say, Japanese haiku poetry, the way of describing a beautiful moment is minimalist. And it has so much to do with being in that moment and meditating on that moment when you see the frog splash into the pond or something, or you observe the contrast between the cherry blossom and the bark of the tree. It's it's like so many ways in which people are thinking about what's beauty that is culturally specific, but across, you know, across different cultures, there is this idea about beauty and poetry and the way that that is conveyed that I think is, is, is a universal, which is not something you could say about a whole bunch of things. People are so different. I find that just, I find that so interesting. Uh, the precision of language and the way in which the beauty of words comes across in poetry, even if the topic and the way that it is framed is not happy, right? So, you know, sometimes the beautiful is not pretty, but we have this sense of satisfaction that is deeply meaningful because we feel a sense of completion and profoundness in the, by the time we end, or maybe even after we finish hearing the poem. So that's really, that's also a kind of beauty, but it's, it's like gothic or disturbing or something, but it's, 
It's another form of appreciating beauty. So it could be the words or the way the words sound together or the picture that's being described. Stop me if I'm getting off track here. Or it could be be the emotion that it conveys, even if one can't really articulate what that precise emotion is. I guess it sounds like it's a whole world of experience. Again, like much the way beauty is, it's an experience. Is that an apt way? I think it's, I think it is. um, I think that is a way to say it. Absolutely. That poetry is experiencing a moment with someone and that there is a beauty of being in that world, being in that sensibility with someone. And sometimes that means, you you know, you're talking about difficult, you know, even horrible things, but we have a more profound understanding about that, that thing or those things because we're there with the person. We're really, because we're there with the person and we're really moved by that moment with that person or even non-human persons because personification is a huge element of poetry it could be talking about a tree or a rock or a god or anything it's it's really quite extraordinary the ways in which poetry can help us understand things in new ways because it's working at so many elements with so many elements at so many intersections at the same time. So the list that you started, it could go on and on and on about the different ways in which poetry is meaningful for a person and why. It just, it's its limitless. Have we always had poetry? I mean, as, as a language or as an art, I don't really know if I should, maybe it wasn't always always understood um, from, from that, con- within that context, but mm. has there always been some kind of poetry in, in humans? Well, depending on who you ask, but I would say my perspective as a poet is that, yes, that there's always been poetry. And my argument, and I don't, I'm certainly not the only one to have made this argument, but, um, you know, you could convey a lot of things without speaking poetically, like basic human needs or basic needs. I mean, trees, animals, plants, there's different ways in which living beings can continue to exist without poetry, (laughs) you know, right? Or even speaking. So what is the motivation for speech? And in my opinion, it's to utter poetry, to utter something or connect with something that is so profound that you need to find a way to say it. It's not based on the mundane. It's based on the extraordinary and it motivates human speech. So I think as long as there's been human beings, there's been poetry. So it gives us accessibility to experience as well as the experience itself. Yeah, that's right. So you said that poetry can can be beautiful in a visual sense, in an oral sense. Um, can you give us some examples of how that's true? I mean, since you do speak poetry and practice poetry across many mediums, What would be some examples of that? And also on the heels of that question, what forms of poetry are evolving or popular now relative to maybe 20 years ago or 40 years ago? Well, I have two poems that are seemingly very different from each other, but uh, to me, they're not so different. I, I love them both. 
And um, I'll talk a little bit about them and why I think they're they're meaningful. Uh, And in conversation with each other, if you will, despite the fact that they seem so different. The first poem is untitled, and it's by this wonderful poet uh, who passed away too young, unfortunately, named Akilah Oliver, who was a friend of mine. And I think it, it speaks to your question of beauty. She writes, this body, a public adornment to speak of in relation to scale. In the charlatan's clothes, I collect epigraphs to mark this form as urgent, sinking, replicable, and twisting like nightmares seeking solitude, nostalgic and post-colonial light I am not seeking. Ungrounded for so many refused seasons, a bargaining chip between us. So in this poem, Akilah is talking about adornment, the public adornment of the body, but the body as public adornment, right? How we see beauty in the physical presentation of a person. And that she, I, the way that I read her poem here is that that's not really who she is. That's what the public sees, right? And she doesn't have a lot of control over the perception of her based on the adornment of this thing called the body that people see. But that she realizes that that is, plays a factor in how she moves in the world, right? So I, I, you know, happen to think, and I think many would agree that Akilah Oliver is, was a beautiful person in her physical adornment. Uh, But she's also not, she refuses to be limited by that perception of her as her, right? She says that she's not seeking this particular, you know, this particular way of perceiving her. And that in some ways it is ungrounding for her, right? And that it's a bargaining chip. So it's it's interesting to think of beauty as a bargaining chip that somebody doesn't want to play because they don't see their essential nature as bound up with that. It's not their perception of their inherent value as a human being. So right. you, even they, if you don't reject it, you could be in conflict with it. Right. And she's negotiating both of those realities that it's not what defines her to herself, but in the world defining her in that way, she has to reckon with that definition. So that's that's one. And I want to contrast that with another poem that explicitly says beauty, uh, as many of the poems in this cycle do. And it's by this guy um, named William Shakespeare, whom you may have heard of. (laughs) Oh yeah, him. (laughs) And this is Sonnet 24. Mine eye hath played the painter and hath stelled thy beauty's form in table of my heart. My body is the frame wherein tis held and perspective it is best painter's art. For through the painter must you see his skill 
to find where your true image pictured lies, which in my bosom's shop is hanging still, that half his windows glazed with thine eyes. Now see what good turns eyes for eyes have done. Mine eyes have drawn thy shape and thine for me. Are windows to my breast where through the sun delights to peep, to gaze therein on thee. Yet eyes, this cunning, want to grace their art. They draw, but what they see, know not the heart. Okay, that's beautiful. But I cannot wait to hear you explain that to me because yeah, it's a little beyond me. I, I can only feel it. I, I cannot understand it. Well, you know, don't underestimate the feeling because... Shakespeare worked very hard at helping people feel things. And he did that technically, as well as, you know, as you said, intuitively, because he's an artist. So he let himself be his intuitive intuition drive him also. Mm -hmm. But just to say, they're both talking about the limitations of the perception of beauty and what's actually inside. So this last couplet, right, where he writes... Uh, sorry. That's okay. Should have turned that off. It's okay. No worries. This last couplet, when he says, yet eyes, this cunning, want to grace their art. They draw, but what they see, know not the heart. It's like the eyes can only show you but so much in terms of someone's beauty and why someone would love them. The eyes don't know the profound beauty that the heart knows. It's that's another level, right? So he frames this in terms of the beauty of the person, the exterior beauty that a painter could capture, but not the beauty of love that that this poet is capturing, because the poet is articulating the feelings of the heart, what the heart knows, not just what the eyes can see. So uh, there's a lot to say about both of these poems, but the reason I wanted to share both of those is because they talk about the limitations of beauty through just the physical and that there's this deeper relationship to beauty from what's inside, what's inside the writer, what's inside the perceiver, and that's beyond just the physical. So it's, it's just, they're actually in conversation with each other in a very basic, creative, poetic, romantic way. And they refuse to be limited by the outside perception of beauty because they're saying the inside understanding of the heart is much, much richer than that, of the heart, the mind, and soul. It's much, much richer than that. So it, it's. I wanted to just say one more thing about that. Uh, because so many of us think about beauty as what the poet articulates. And in these two poems, we see the outside beauty that you hope we talk about, that is superficial to the kind of beauty that we really want to talk about. (laughs) Beauty that really hits us. These two poems, period. But I certainly love them together because Uh, The voices are very different. The backgrounds of these two individuals and their biographies are very different. 
But as poets, they're talking about a profound relationship to the self and one's experiences that's very much joined. I love how you put both poems and the poets in conversation with one another. I've, I've seen this in art installations, you know, in museums often, ex- exhibitions. They're always talking about uh, paintings and works and uh, whatever the art is being in dialogue with one another. And it took me a long time to understand that. I have never, uh, I, I have never really thought about that in terms of poetry, but it is very helpful in understanding what the poets are trying to say. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, with Akilah's poem, you very much get a sense of the outside world trying to push her in, you know? Right. And with Shakespeare, I think the one of the things that he's resisting in Sonnet 24 is this idea of the limitations of what a poet's supposed to write about or talk about. These these this collection of sonnets, uh, which is it's it's a it's a pretty substantial cycle. It's um, 154 poems uh, in this particular cycle. Uh, talk about love and beauty and desire and the poet's art and the poet's understanding of the world during you know the Renaissance era. Um, and the, most of these poems are about a young man and, and uh, about 126 of them. And then uh, 28 are about uh, the dark lady. They're known as the dark lady um, section of this, uh, of this cycle. And so he also talks about the, the superficiality of youth and beauty and that shift. Uh, and I think that so he's reconciling with the out, the idea of outside beauty and limitation throughout this whole cycle and the profundity of his deep feelings are not limited to that. So again, this, this drive, I think, for all poets to go deeper, to think more profoundly, to, to get at this central idea of human meaning uh, is just so profound and, and it's so extraordinary. I wanted to say one more thing about beauty and uh, sort of, since you talked about a poetic beauty, ugly poetic beauty, that um, even though he's a highly problematic person, I just want to say was a huge influence on me was Edgar Allan Poe, who is a extraordinary writer, a highly problematic person. Let me just say that again. But uh the sense of satisfaction that you get when you read his poems is not because they have a happy ending. It's the opposite. He gives you such a sense of completion in the world, in a world that is that reinforces a lack of beauty in some ways, that uh, it's one of the reasons why his writing is so compelling. So I wanted to just balance these very deep senses of beauty with, with a kind of an opposite example of say the Raven where, you know, he's never going to get out of there, out of that room with that bird. He's never going to get out. Um, Whether you consider it an actual situation with an actual bird or his conflicted mind and grief. Yeah. It's just not going to get out, but we leave that with such a profound sense of satisfaction because of the wonderful way in which he wrote it. And he got us into the mind of the speaker. So, you know, poems aren't always happy. Uh, 
they're not even always articulating something lovely, but they do give us a very profound sense of the human experience on so many levels. And like I said before, not just human, but certainly, you know, a lot of focus on the human. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how the notion of what is considered a beautiful poem has changed over time? I feel like we kind of touched on that when we initially spoke, that what might have been considered a beautiful poem uh, uh, 100 years ago might be uh, out of fashion or just not relevant today. You know, it's funny. A lot of things changed in the 1920s. So, uh, you know, not as far afield, maybe. One of the things that um, that maybe, you know, throughout poetry has shifted, um, I would say certainly in the last like 20 or 30 years, is this relationship with mediation and popular culture. And it's just it's plain access in a sort of uh, global access. So. Communities that were considered a little bit more fringe earlier on, like, say, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. the slam scene, 40 years ago, hip hop has profoundly influenced American art and letters. At the same time that the more established ways of thinking about poetry have continued to gain traction. But I think both at the Iowa Writers Workshop and just in mainstream culture, there's not you can't really deny the relationship that popular culture now has on the way that young people think about poetry and poetics. The way that they think about rhyme, especially internal rhyme, has just shifted radically because of hip hop and its use of dense time signatures, you know, unpredictable ways of using rhyme. All of that has fanned out sometimes subtly, sometimes really clearly throughout poetry, poetics, song, dance, all of these different ways. So it's like what we talked about in the beginning about things being poetic, but in a radically different way than the sort of lofty, exalted goals I talked about before. Now it's like the popular culture articulation of poetry has started to fan out. And as I said, as you know, I just mentioned, I I feel like it's very strongly presented in internal rhyme and the density of rhyme and the way that songwriters, dancers, all of these different types of people are reiterating certain sounds and creating these varied patterns. I'm not saying that those patterns didn't exist before, but the rapid fire relationship between this internal rhyme structure has just continued to um, fan out in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, so I think that's interesting and exciting But rather than say, oh, it's those young people with their pop stuff, you know, we have to say, well, how do we think about this and analyze it poetically? Uh, So that's one of the things that I incorporate into my classes, like what sounds are young people hearing now and why are they saying things the way that they're saying them for their generation? And it's, it's so exciting as a teacher because I might have the certain like standardized ways of saying these things. Mm-hmm. But to empower younger people um, to say this is poetic technique in this way, you're doing you are using poetic technique, but in a in a in a way that's new for your generation. It's so exciting and validating and empowering for them to know that they're part of poetic traditions and 
just because they don't sound like the way that standard academic poetry sounds often, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm making quotation marks with my fingers as I'm yeah, saying right. it. Of course. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not a deeply ingrained with poetics. And then, in fact, may proceed a lot of what's considered standard because people have been speaking poetry way, 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 way before they started writing it. Way before writing technology became the standard uh, for someone saying a poetry was legitimate. There were millennia, eons of, of spoken poetic culture. And these younger poets are part of both of those environments, but certainly part of that ancient tradition. It seems so obvious now when you say it, the connection. It's almost come full circle in that sense, hasn't it? Yeah. And that's the way I think it should be taught. Not that it's this fancy thing that you can't touch because it's too good for you and you're not smart enough to understand it. It's like, no, this is this is a totality of human experience. People pretty much talk about the same things. You know, Shakespeare's talking about love and desire and beauty and, you know, what 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 his heart feels. It's like that's nothing new. It's just sometimes the way that it's framed makes people feel that they are not worthy of this thing that's so exalted. And that's the thing that needs to change. This concept that poetry is accessible to only a few. When right. in fact. So it does feel like to me that we are experiencing a kind of renaissance in poetry right now. It just seems like, I don't know if the word in fashion is a good word, but it does seem to be more prevalent than it has been, at least, you know, in my experience um, mm-hmm. in, in quite a while. Do you agree with that? or do you th- um, I think it's always, well, I think that you're talking about um, the way that it's perceived in popular culture. And yeah. because of the massive barrage of, of popular culture that, that is in, in, it invades every part of our lives. You know, you really can't get a break from it, but, you know, unless you really work at it. But, and I think that something, part of the thing that's riding that wave of ubiquity of popular culture is ranges of poetic technique and sound being used. But yes, I think that, as I said, you know, the, the influence of hip hop, which is, is quite profound beyond even the communities that began to generate it in the 1970s mm-hmm. and um, the pervasiveness of song and sound in, in everything uh, in, in popular culture. Now it's uh from advertising to, well, to to a, a variety of things in popular culture. Um, all of that is making poetry have much more of a popular presence. But of course, it's always it's always been there. It's always been present. But I think it's 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 different in the way that people hear it now because they're used to just hearing these sounds, these poetic, strongly poetically influenced sounds, um, people speaking and. Those that speech, whether with music or not, being part of the ubiquitous sound that we hear everywhere all the time. Anytime we click on a link or something, there's some sort of sonic articulated um, dynamic going on, unless you really work at taking a break from it, which I do, which I I work at that. (laughs) (laughs) Does the concept of beauty in relation to poetry ever come up 
in your courses? Are your students even interested in the relationship or has it been divorced from the understanding of poetry based on, you know, sound and, you know, the influence of rap? And maybe there are other things that are more that are more relevant and are immediate right now. It's such an interesting question. Uh, without going into the details, the deep, the deep weeds of the workshop uh, experience with me and my students, uh, one of the things that we push, uh, well, that I, I like to push them a bit on when I'm working with them, because they're all wonderful writers when they walk in the door. So it's not like I, you know, I have to teach you how to write. It's all about making you the best, making them the best poets they can be on their terms and their voice. And sometimes that's a it. it the message that I would want to convey to them or that we share with each other is counterintuitive to what you just said. It's to make it a little less obviously beautiful, not to necessarily make it ugly or counterintuitive, but it's the obvious part. It's like if you're developing your poetic technique to, to take it to the next level so that you could continue to work on this for the rest of your life, you can't put just like some little obvious bow on top of it because everybody would like it. You've got to, push to go to the depths a little bit. And so one of my regular critiques is, do you need all of those words? Do you need this word? Do you need that word? Let the words do some more work and, you know, let the, use the words that do more work. And the other is, you know, don't just put a bow on it because sometimes if you make things so obviously beautiful, the audience, the reader or even you as a writer, you don't have to really think about it. Right. And, you know, we want people to think about the poem after it's been read. You know, it's sometimes people like that. You know, if you want to watch the sort of junk TV, the sort of of superficial sitcom with a laugh track and, you know, it's going to end fine and it's nothing too deep. Sometimes you just want that kind of thing in your life. You don't want to think really deeply. Yeah, you want the brownie. <laughs> yeah, you just like, give me that cookie. I know it's cookie, whatever. Yeah. You know, so no, yeah. no nutrition in this, whatever. That's that. Yeah. But we're not training, we're not teaching the students, we're not sharing our advice with the students to be, to, to give them that sort of superficial layer. So for many of us, the beauty is in the profound, the profound relationship with words and language and to have it continue to resonate afterwards. So the the poems that I read for you by Akila and um, and William Shakespeare, there's a part of that that you still hear, that you still feel way after I stopped reading them, because it's not obvious the end and everybody claps and there's a laugh track. There's something that's still stirring, that's still resonating. And I consider that a much more profound relationship to beauty than just roses are red. Violets are blue, the end. <laughs> right. Sometimes you do want that. You might want it on a card, but you don't want to necessarily do that for the rest of your life with poetry because it doesn't plumb the depths. Right. It's not limiting. And also in the world we live in today, there is, my God, there's just so much and so much going on that um, hmm. I think we need all of our words and all of our skills and all of our depth to understand and even basically process everything that's going on around us. I guess that's why I personally feel like the immediacy of poetry is important right now because uh, we also have just too much to deal with. We have too much to process. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you're saying something I think that's really important because uh, one of the things I think we we are negotiating is the superficial uh, the attempt to make words superficial and irrelevant and meaningless and we we have to sort of morally resist that because language is the way that we convey things it's the way that we share for the most you know it's overwhelmingly how that's how we use language and if it becomes meaningless then how can we say what we need to say how can we be who we need to be how can we relate to each other I remember uh in one of the things when I read 1984 by George Orwell a million years ago high school and one thing that really struck me uh and I might be paraphrasing here he said it wasn't noteworthy by all of the words that they made up it was it was noteworthy all the words they took away and it's not just the words that are taken away it's making meaningless the words that exist well poetry the words are meaningful and they continue to resonate and they continue to exist and it's it's actually not to me it's not political in other words, it's not superficially political. You can have a whole bunch of different political perspectives uh, and still think poetry is deeply meaningful and know that poetry is deeply meaningful. So it's we're not talking about disagreements on politics. We're talking about fundamental human feeling and understanding. And poetry is the beauty through which we articulate these things, even if it's not pleasant. So... We have to advocate for it so that we can continue to act, uh, advocate for meaningfulness in our lives and the, uh, that our lives have meaning. Fundamentally, that our lives have meaning. That's how high I think the stakes are. Not to be solipsistic or self-referential in, in any respect, but I do kind of feel that's what's at stake with this whole the conventional understanding of beauty. I, I spoke to, I think I told you this, I spoke to a scientist a while back about how beauty uh, was part of being human, was part of human experience, and there's a survival imperative within it, and mm-hmm. and also a way of uh, understanding the world. But if we just continually reduce it to its most basic components or turn it into something that's just only important in terms of commerce or judging what's on the outside, we're just missing a whole world of essential experience. And the world becomes very dark when we take that away. You have to have love and you have to have beauty and you have to have language, uh, I think, to survive. I really, I think I agree with you. I think the stakes are that high. I think we have to have these things to survive. They're not incidental. Right. And you know what's so interesting? Um, I, I the thing that I I found incredibly deep uh, about just saying the survival and language. It's not even about articulating language. Um, it's through the voice, right? There are, there are extraordinary poets who are deaf. There are extraordinary poets who. Oh my gosh! I'm sorry about this. Okay, no worries. Um, there's extraordinary. Um, 
there's extraordinary poets who uh, are deaf. There are extraordinary poets who cannot speak for various uh, medical reasons. There are poets across the spectrum of, of cognition. It's a fundamental human thing. And there's different ways in which individuals who are different in terms of ability and cognition articulate or present poetry, but it still exists. It continues to exist. It's a fundamental human thing. And that's why what you're saying about going to these different places, it's important that we know that that beauty is everywhere and in everyone. It really, really is. It's not even limited to what we're, what we as maybe able-bodied people are used to. It's, it's, it, it's a fundamental human thing. It's a fundamental human sense of beingness and need. It's, it's, you know, so that to me is, is beautiful to, to think about it that way. That is one of those things that you could say, yeah, we all have this. We all are profoundly moved by this. We all feel this. We all know this. And that it can access so many different levels. It's really limitless. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, um, I know that you've read us a couple of poems that, you know, that you thought were, that address this concept of beauty, just in terms of your personal appreciation, um, a poem that you find beautiful or some poems that you find beautiful. Are there any particular poets or works that you could, you know, recommend to our readers? I mean, our listeners, uh, readers, I guess they're going to read this if they read the transcript, <laughs> but, um, but, or that, that you would just, that you would refer people to who maybe find this conversation interesting and might want to just explore poetry, generally speaking, you know, just kind of get their feet wet. Oh yeah. Well, you know, one of the reasons I talk about William Shakespeare is because I'm tired of people being Passion. well, it, being intimidated by him. Yeah, because they were poorly taught, you know, about who he was. Uh, so I would say climb that mountain, you know. I and I I would strongly recommend um, the Arden Shakespeare sonnets uh, with the uh, extraordinary introduction by Catherine Duncan Jones. Uh, I came across that particular edition, the second edition, as an actor. That was the the book that uh, we looked at as actors to sort of connect with the sonnets and characters and think about them as like little tiny plays. So I was like, don't let don't let some overly precious second grade teacher, you know, scare you away from William Shakespeare. He's talking about the basic things that poets love to talk about. It's just the language is a little old and. He's really good at putting the different moving parts together, but he's basically talking about love. So, you know, that's that's fine. And, and, and there's a lot of high drama, but it's basically yeah. talking about love. So I would I would recommend Shakespeare's sonnets. Don't let them intimidate you. And that particular version, I would highly recommend. What can you repeat? What is that version again? It's the Arden second edition Shakespeare sonnets. OK, uh, with a A-R-D-E-N. Yes. OK, yeah. sorry. And Go ahead. And I'm sorry. And the person who wrote a really great introduction to that is uh, the scholar Catherine Duncan Jones. So I would I would highly recommend that. Um, and take your time with it. You know, 
It's not speed reading. So just take your time and ex- luxuriate in that language. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a book uh, where I read Akila Oliver's poem from uh, called Letters to the Future Black Women Radical Writing, um, edited by Erica Hunt and Dawn Lundy Martin. And that's a Corre Press. I would highly recommend that book. I mean, you're going to get a real range of different types of writing there. And uh, from a perspective of uh, Black women innovative writers. And I I would recommend one more that deals with innovative writing, because I think uh, standard poetry books and anthologies are pretty much, you could just do a Google search and find a lot of those. Okay. But um, there's uh, an edition of, a series called Best Experimental um, Best Experimental Writing. And some of the stuff you might get and some of it is really going to push you. But there's an, a, an edition that I co-edited with Charles Bernstein and the series editors that came, uh, that's the 2016 BAX, B-A-X, um, B-A-X 2016 collection that we really, really tried to push the relationship of poetry and other art forms and those conversations uh, that came out of Wesley University Press in 2017. So I would also recommend that. I mean, okay. if you really want to push, push it. Yeah, no, terrific. Yeah. And I just no. want to say one more thing about those three references. You know, there's nothing wrong with reading Poe and reading some of those or Mm -hmm. reading Shakespeare and listening to hip hop and doing this. Like it's a way of expanding your relationship to poetry. There's a, Oh, I should mention at least one um, non uh, American based example. And uh, I want to mention the haiku handbook uh, by um, William Higginbotham and Penny Harder. Uh, a big uh, contributor, Penny Harder. Uh, That book will give you a sense of Japanese poetry and poetics and how it works. And it had a huge influence on modernist poetry in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, So, you know, just to get yourself a different kind of perspective. So uh, anyway, I'm opening up a door and then everybody's going to, you know, the people who are interested will walk through it and see, oh my goodness, there's all these forests and all these different terrains. Um, and the last thing I just want to say, uh, sorry about this. No, this is why we're here. I'm, we're here to hear you, not me. <laughs> I, I just want to say, hopefully, you know, starting to peek at these different little poetic possibilities. Some may be radical for you. Some may be way, way traditional for you, for the, for the listeners uh-huh. is to think what are the, po- what's, what's the poetry and the way that everyday people talk, the way that my grandmother talks, the way that my uncle talks. What's poetic in the big with the big P? What's poetic about the way that they say things? Just sort of enjoying people's language. Sometimes people will just say a phrase at the grocery store. And it's like, you know, that's so cool. That's such a cool way that you said that. You know, that's like a hip way that you said that. Oh, I never thought about it that way. Or how did you come up with that phrase? That's poetic too. It really is. It's just like loving the way that people use language. I don't mean these sort of blunt trauma, just I'm being mean and I said something mean. I don't think that takes any skill. I don't think that's poetic. But I mean, like, 
you know, a, a phrase or a tale or a, a maxim. You know what I mean? Just right. something that someone says it. You're like, you know, I like the way you put that together. Limericks, all of these different things. You know, the wit of a, a traditional Irish limerick, whether in, in English or Irish. I mean, it's like there's something fabulous about the everyday way in which poetry is in our lives. And people should hear the way that their friends and neighbors talk that way because it is fundamentally poetic, because it's fundamentally how we talk. And that's fundamentally poetic. Wow. We need to we need to start listening a little bit differently or we we would be not need to, but we would be. um we would be probably surprised and uh, enlightened if we would listen. Well, we'd hear the beauty. We'd hear right. the beauty every single day. And, and you know, to get to the point of this wonderful podcast of yours, where's the beauty everywhere? It's always there. You hear somebody and you just, because you're half on your phone and half on your way to your car or whatever, and you're just like, well, wait a minute. That was a good one. Wait, how, how did you, wait a minute, that was kind of cool. Or the way that, you know, I like the way people just will say something at a store. Like if they'll say attention shoppers, blah, blah, blah. It's like sometimes people put their own little spit on it. Or you're just like, I like the way that they said that. How come I never heard that that way before, you know? Or yeah. people say something goofy and laugh and you're like, you know, that was kind of hilarious what you said. I'm laughing too. You know, just like really be there with some of these things that we hear every single day because they're really gorgeous. They're, people are gorgeous and they say gorgeous things all the time. Beautiful things all the time. I, it just brings to mind sometimes I've missed some things. <laughs> well, they're waiting for you. They're yes. waiting for you. They're still there waiting for you. And, and you say them yourself. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm actually glad you said that. I just want to say one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> Your own beauty. Don't miss that. You know, you could say, you know, I want to articulate this this way and, and have a sense of satisfaction because you like the way that you said that thing. Because you took the, you know, you took the step to think about the poetics of it or the beauty of it. And you put that effort in there and you set it in a more meaningful way. People do that at weddings all the time. They say, oh, my God, how did you how did you come up with that? Because, you know, they give a toast and they took the moment to actually try to find the beauty and the profound and, and the profundity uh -huh. in that moment. And they may or may not be the best poets, in quote, but it still reaches into people so profoundly because they touched what was there and everybody felt it. Those moments are there, aren't they? All the time. They are. People are often at their most poetic and most profound when giving a speech at a wedding and they're not even particularly <clears throat> necessarily well-spoken or it's really not their fort, but they they find it within themselves and it just comes out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Weddings, funerals, christings. Right. You know, all of these these profound moments, but also goofy things like, you know, you made a joke because somebody hit your car, but they didn't dent it. So you made a little funny comment. They laughed and you, you know, it's those moments and also the extraordinary moment. I just love that that poetics in people. I just love that. And traditionally, that has been the role of the poet, like an official job. You have to come and speak at the funeral. 
You Uh have to come and speak. I'm asking you to come and say the thing at the wedding. This is, this is the thing you have to do the thing. This is your role. Yeah. That's your social role. And one of the things about poets even continues to this day is sometimes they say the things that everybody else wants to say, including in families, but nobody else can say because of whatever reason. And then the poet, the artist articulates that. And sometimes it marginalizes us a little bit, but we're relied upon to say that thing. So there's a point sometimes when you become a little bit scary, say if you're an artist in your family, because somebody's like, yeah, you know how to say things in a way that really could get to us. So uh, it becomes a little unnerving. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're speaking from personal experience. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember I remember when I was asked to speak at a funeral of one of my when my uh, cousin passed. And it was it was this is years and years ago. And I was like, I can't. Why am I doing that? And it was suggested. And then, of course, I well, I could I felt I couldn't say no. But it made me think this is this is this is part of the tradition I am in. And um, I wrote this poem. I'm going to be 100 percent honest with you. I wrote this poem before I went to the funeral and it was it was kind of bad. You know, I was <laughs> I was I was being poet with a capital P. And you know how I knew it was bad? No. And sat with the body of my cousin in the funeral parlor, just me and him. And then I looked at that poem and I was like, this is inadequate. This is not this moment. This is something that I wrote before because I was trying to be a poet. And then I, I threw it away. I threw that poem away, uh, which was a respite for my entire family. And, um, <laughs> and I spoke from the heart and put that into poetic language right at that, you know, at, at that time where I was sitting with his body. And uh, because I realized it wasn't about me, <laughs> that was the thing that helped. And one of the reasons why the other poem was so bad, I was too self-conscious. But I was like, what is the po- What is the purpose of this poem with his father sitting there? What is the purpose of this poem? And I was like, what am I doing for my family right now? And that clarified everything, you know, as well as honoring the person who passed. It's like, what am I doing here? What's my job here? And that clarified everything and made me write better, you know, but that that tradition goes back to the beginning of human beingness. <laughs> you know, why do I have to speak? Of, who's going to speak to this extraordinary moment? The person who's been designated, who's dedicated their life to doing that thing. And that's your responsibility to community to say those things that we can't all say because we haven't focused on doing that thing. Now go do that thing. <laughs> well, uh, well uh, that just, that makes me believe that uh, we all have a bit of the poet lord. Well, those who are poets have a bit of, I've just never seen it as a, understood it as a responsibility, but hearing you say it that way, when that is your, your role in life and that is what you do. Um, I'm, we just, I think we need more poets. <laughs> That's what I'm basically getting at. We need them for all occasions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And to bring out our own poetry, you know, to yeah. bring out poetry in ourselves. That's a, absolutely right. Absolutely right. 
Well, I have to tell you that it has been a beautiful experience having you um, on the podcast. I really is. I I am so appreciative of your time. And I think that um, our audience is just going to be fascinated by this conversation. You are just a wonderful speaker. And I told you this before, and I, I know you demurred, but maybe somewhere down the road, you'll uh, honor us with another visit and come back on the podcast. I would love that. And I'm sure that our audience would love it as well. Well, I mean, this is such a great, great idea, Nina. And I just want to thank you for such wonderful questions and such thoughtful considerations about this whole idea, as well as bringing poetry into it. It's just really, really wonderful uh, because I think you've taken something that's often seen in a superficial way and thought of and asked us to think about it much more deeply. And I think that that is really needed right now because there's so much superficiality. And I think that it's unhealthy for individual, for uh, individual people as well as the world. So I, I just want to thank you for inviting me and for putting together great, thoughtful um, episode, but also just podcast idea. This is, like, this is such a great idea that you have here. Well, thank you very much. I, I want to do my little part, you know, too. So I hope this helps that we all have to do what we can these That's days. Right. So, well, thank you again, Tracy. Um, I wish you the best of luck in your upcoming classes and your career. And again, I hope we get to speak with you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nina. <laughs> okay. Be well. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help support it, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all of the latest from This Is Beauty, you can also follow us on Instagram at This Is Beauty Podcast or on Facebook at This Is Beauty Podcast. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.